Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Proud, said Harry. Are you mad? All those times I could have died and I didn't manage it. They'll be furious. And together they walked back through the gateway to the muggle world. I'm a mandrake, newly in love with the plant next door, and sure, we're going to live happily ever after. And I'm a feral but loyal, compact, two-door piece of Detroit rolling iron. And the car is helping me escape with my mandrake lover on Harry Potter and the (laughs) Sacred Text. So, Vanessa, we finished book two. What are your overall impressions of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? My overall impression of book two, other than the fact that I like it more and more every time I read it, is that this is the book, and I'm wondering if you would agree, where Harry gets exposed to sort of the underbelly of the wizarding world. In book one, it was to some extent Dursley's bad Hogwarts wizarding world good, like bad things happened, but the world in and of itself was sort of a a righteous force. And now he's seeing that like Lockhart is someone who obliviates people And the Minister of Magic is corrupt and house elves, slavery exists. And so I feel like this is the book where he is adjusting to this new world and seeing that it's just as corrupt as the Muggle world. I think that's absolutely true. I think that the series acquires like a depth and a history in this book. And part of what is exposed or uncovered is this thing that we've said In our discussions of book two, which is represented through the metaphor of the snake in the walls and the Mm -hmm. evil in the pipes, right? Like that this wizarding world is built upon some terrible things, right? And that just gets exposed in this book, which really elaborates and enriches 
this world and yeah. lays out the rest of the series. So, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. That emerged for me, too. What other impressions did you have, Matt? In all honesty, from my memory of reading the first seven books, book two was one of my least favorite because some of the plot points seemed a little bit uh, forced to me. And the confrontation with Riddle seemed just really different than all the other confrontations with Voldemort, which it is, right? But it seemed out of character. But I think reading it this time, I realized, like, it had to be a past form of Voldemort. It had to be a form of Voldemort from the past because this book is really about exposing this history, hmm. exposing where all this evil in the present comes from. It doesn't come from nowhere. The monster Voldemort doesn't just arise out of nowhere. It actually comes from this long and ancient history of evil, which is what, you know, what sets the ground for Voldemort in the present. And to that end, like, even though I still find a lot of the plot points kind of clumsy and some of the construction clumsy, I feel like it's really necessary. This is a really necessary book. And that turn to the past and thinking about history, this book really kind of sets the stage for everything else that's to come. And so it makes it, like, really necessary. And it, and it won some admiration for me because, because it makes those stakes so consequential, so important. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's. I think the only time where we hear Ben's break script in all seven books, right? Yeah. Where he actually looks up from his lecture notes and talks to the students. And I think that there's actually something strong about that as allegory, that history isn't taught well sometimes to young people. And there are stakes to that when we yeah. whitewash our history and when we say, oh, that's just a fable. It's just exaggerated. And so I, I even think that that is set up really well with like halfway through the book, there's this conversation with the history teacher about the importance of telling these stories to the next generation. Okay, Vanessa, it is time for 30 second recaps. Of the whole book. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Harry goes and stays at the Weasleys, and it's so nice, and then the boys decide to fly to Hogwarts, and they crash into the Whomping Willow, and Snape tries to get them expelled. And then Harry can hear a voice in the wall, and he's like, oh my god, something's talking to me, and Ginny is acting really weird, and a bunch of kids get petrified, and that's really scary, but don't worry, they're going to slaughter some mandrakes, and everything will be fine. And then Harry goes down to the basement with Tom Riddle and Gilderoy Lockhart in order to rescue Ginny, and he rescues Ginny, and it turns out that Tom Riddle is Voldemort. Hit it all. Nice. I appreciate the opportunity weekly to learn from you, Vanessa. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things I learned today, I'm sure I will learn many other things. One of the things I learned today is, especially with the wrap-up 30-second recap, you can get in a lot of danger in the first 10 seconds. Yes. Like, you, you just got to <laughs> go for it and skip some stuff at the beginning, because otherwise, you're never going to get through the whole book. Okay, Matt. I can't wait to hear all about the first 10 pages. On your mark. Okay. Get set. Go. So Harry's at Privet Drive and it sucks. And then Dobby comes and there's a big disaster because Dobby doesn't want him to go. And he's broken free in a Fort Anglia by the Weasleys. And he goes to the borough and then they uh, they go to, to uh, Diagon Alley. And then Ginny gets the diary and then they have to drive to Hogwarts or fly to Hogwarts. And they hit the Wampy Willow. I'm going way too slow. And a bunch of stuff happens. People are almost killed and they follow the spiders and Hagrid's taken away and Dumbledore is not the headmaster. And then they figure out that it's, the, that it's, that it's Tom Riddle as Voldemort and there's a basilisk that they kill with a sword. Oh my god, I feel like you did so well. Such important what? details that I missed. You got Hagrid in there, you got Aragog, you got Ginny in the diary. 
I like the full book wrap 30 second recaps. So Matt, we find that sometimes we forget to talk about Harry on this podcast. And so we always like to use a moment in the wrap up episodes to think about Harry's arc in the book. And I'm wondering what you thought about Harry's arc this time. I have a complicated answer to this question, Vanessa. And and it's because I think that there are three arcs that overlap with each other or feed off of each other, right? In our wrap-up episode of the first book, I remember seeing the arc for Harry was one of belonging, right? Where does Harry belong? He definitely doesn't belong at Privet Drive. He's not sure he belongs at Hogwarts, even though everyone says he belongs. And I feel like at the beginning of this book, he feels very comfortable in his belonging. He feels like he belongs in the borough in a particular way, even though it's not his family. He feels some belonging there. He's a second year now, so he belongs at Hogwarts in a different way. That old question is tweaked again because everyone thinks he might be the heir of Slytherin. So he wonders how much he actually belongs. And although he feels like he belongs at Hogwarts and doesn't believe he is the heir of Slytherin, he doubts that of himself sometimes and wonders if he belongs in Gryffindor. So this is one arc that's going on. And along with that arc comes this realization. This is a second realization, I think, or the second arc for Harry, which is related to what you talked about in your overall impressions, which is not only is the wizarding world exposed as deeply flawed, but Harry comes to understand that it is exposed as deeply flawed. And that belonging in this world, it doesn't mean it's necessarily an entirely virtuous or good world, right? I think in the first book, The Wizarding World, with the exception of like some jerks like Malfoy and Snape and the presence of this monstrous character, Voldemort, the Wizarding World was a welcoming good place, right? And that's why it was able to feel like he belonged there. Now Harry is developing a more subtle sense of belonging where he can understand that he belongs, but also see clearly that the Wizarding World is a dangerous and, and deeply flawed place. So that arc three, he comes to understand that his belonging in this world means taking some responsibility for addressing those faults and flaws, right? His belonging gets tied to his recognition, which is then in turn tied to his responsibility for doing something about it. Does that make sense? So to fully belong in the wizarding world, he has to take responsibility for everything that's wrong in the wizarding world and try to fix it. Right. I I mean, I love that. I love the idea that belonging comes with responsibility, right? To belong to something means that You don't get to pick and choose what parts of it you belong to. Yeah. And I feel like that that is a great encapsulation of his struggle in this book to deal with Slytherin versus Gryffindor. He's sort of wondering how much he has to atone for his Slytherin-ness because he is a parcel mouth. He almost got sorted into Slytherin and he is like sort of happy to take on the wizarding world as a Gryffindor, but he is worried about this extra complicity if he were a Slytherin. Yeah. And I don't know, that really (laughs) rings true for me, right? Of something that I'm working on in my own life is, you know, the sins of the United States. I'm like, I'm first generation American. I didn't participate in this. And by I, I mean, like my family. And I I think that that was how I got through history class as like a third grader, right? I was like, we didn't do slavery. We didn't do the Trail of Tears, weaving the Zoltans. And now, of course, understanding that just like living in the United States and carrying my whiteness and my privilege means that I'm complicit in those things, regardless of my history, right? And I think that that is what Harry is trying to grapple with. And like, bless him, he really steps into a sense of responsibility while simultaneously issuing the 
Slytherin identity, right? He's like, I don't want yep. parts of it, but I will deal with all of it. Yeah. He's remarkable. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, I think that example you gave of like complicity in the sins of of a nation or a, a state like the United States. I mean, it's not just about thinking about history. It's also thinking about the future. Like there have been times when when we reflect upon gun violence and and so forth in this country that Clint and I have talked about, like, do we move to Japan, right? Is it is it just going to be a safer and better place for our kids? But for me, I think there is this something about the sense of belonging, which my sense of belonging means I feel some responsibility for addressing these problems, right? right like, right. And maybe this is why I read Harry's arc the way I do. In some ways, I feel so much more like I belong in Japan, where, they're, where they have much more, to my mind, reasonable and responsible gun laws. So, right, to me, like, I belong with people who think like that. And in that sense, belonging means like-mindedness, right? Those people think like me and assess risk the same way as me and assess value the same way as me. So I feel like I belong there. But my belonging in this context where there is this incredible discrepancy with real dire consequences, my belonging here is like, oh, this is my responsibility. Like I had right. to do something about this. And so my belonging in this context is more tied to skin in the game or or also recognizing that I have power and privilege to affect some change that I can't really walk away from or I ought not to walk away from. So this is another like Harry's arc moment that I'm going to move us to in response to what you just said, because the way that Harry seems to understand how to address those things is through love as martyrdom. And that is where I obviously start to find this problematic. There's this wonderful idea that gets floated in this book, right? Where in book one, Harry is fighting for himself, right? He says, I have to deal with Voldemort because this is about my family, right? And in this book, he articulates, I can't leave. I have to be here for Hermione, right? And so he's learning that like part of taking care of yourself and part of the integrity of privilege is taking care of others, the people that we love. And then he does it for Ginny, right? But it's at this like huge risk to his personal safety that he is is showing his love. And I I am all for it in a, in a million ways, right? As we've talked about, <laughs> I want us to be addressing each other at personal risk. I want to be letting each other into our homes. I, I do think that love should have risk. But there just seems to be a conflation of like absolute willingness to die that Harry has to deal with again and again that I don't I don't like. Why are we constantly asking this 12-year-old to risk his own life in order to demonstrate that he loves others and for that magical protection to work on others? Martyrdom's really complicated because I think that it covers a lot of different kinds of activities. And I I it's so slippery, and I think that it would, would serve us well to keep them distinguished when we talk about this book. Because I think some of the stuff, as you say in your comments, which I think are just right and true, some of the stuff is stuff we have to embrace, right? And other stuff is problematic and worrisome, right? When we understand martyrdom to mean like a death which almost economically purchases some redemption, which is one of the ways we understand martyrdom, right? Like, I died so that you could live. My death gets something for you. That does become really worrisome because then the people who are consigned to martyrdom are the 
are by definition the lives we value less, right? And we know that human cultures and wizarding cultures get into trouble when they start deciding which lives are more valuable and which lives are less valuable, right? But there is also the idea of risk, which you talked about, right? Like everything that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago was around the idea that in order for there to be more justice, people with power have to give some up. And people who don't usually have to deal with the risk of living in a precarious world have to assume some of that risk, right? Like what's going on here is Harry is sharing the risk of Muggleborns. Every Muggleborn person at Hogwarts is already living under the risk that Harry says, you know what? Even though I don't need to live with this risk, even though I could have been a Slytherin and completely protected from this risk, I am going to live the same risk that my friends and people who I love suffer. And not because it's redemptive, but because the way that we overcome is for people who do not need to assume that risk to try to share it um, or at least give some of their give over some of their privilege to, to folks who don't have it. I think that is something we have to think about. And I think you're really right to problematize it because the idea of a 12-year-old having to make life or death decisions is not the way we want to save the world in any situation, <laughs> right? Or in any version. But I think what the books are pointing us to is actually thinking about what does it actually mean if you do have the privilege of a Slytherin or of a wizard, if you live with the advantages of whatever systems of supremacy ensconce and establish your power and privilege, what would it mean to really recognize the risk of others and to try to really use some of your power to support them and reduce their precarity? Yeah. Vanessa, I mean, I've been talking a lot about my arc. Sorry. What, tell me about what arc did you see for Harry in this book? I saw a couple, obviously. One being, I think that this is the last book where Harry doesn't really have an allyship with uh, an adult because Lupin is about to come in in book three. And I think that Harry is about to learn to trust adults. He'll get Lupin and then he'll get Sirius and, you know, he'll form more of a bond with McGonagall and Dumbledore. But this book, he's still very much on his own or only turning to other kids for support, right? He has Hagrid, but he, you know, we know in book one, he has to help Hagrid just as much as Hagrid is there to help him. I don't think that they rely on Hagrid as an adult in their lives. And in this one too, like Ron and Harry are out there trying to clear Hagrid's name. So there's like this reverse role. And I'm just excited to see Harry in the the next books learn that there are some adults that he can count on. It makes sense that he doesn't feel that way given how he was raised so far. But I'm just, I was just seeing how isolated he was and that even Molly, you know, he he goes to the borough in this book and we know that Molly from the second she meets him is kind and wonderful to him. But the first thing she says when she sees Harry after the Chamber of Secrets is, you saved her, right? It's loving him as the conduit for her daughter. There isn't that like bond of like, I'm so glad you're okay yet. And I'm not judging Molly for that at all. I was just noticing that this is the last book, I think, where Harry really doesn't feel like he has an adult. He's saving Dobby. He's saving Jenny. Like no adults are doing anything for him. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really right. Things are going to really change when he starts to feel like there are adults that he can trust, trust enough to to get close to. Right. I mean, he trusts Dumbledore, but he won't 
in this book, he won't tell Dumbledore the whole story. Right. But he will he will tell the whole story to the folks he's gonna meet in in book three. Right. And it's funny, I mean, as as you were speaking, your comment really kind of illuminated something about his relationship with Hagrid because we love Hagrid, I love Hagrid. And the first thing I thought was like, what about Hagrid? And then the next moment, as you kept talking, was like, oh, they parent Hagrid. Right. Like Hagrid, they are the ones who take care of Hagrid in the first book with the dragon. And then in the in this book as well, like they are the ones who are rescuing Hagrid from himself. And Hagrid doesn't always make good decisions and they they feel responsible for him. So I think that's that's really right. This got me to think about, I wondered if you would speak more about like some of your earlier impressions that you stated earlier in the podcast or relate that to some arc you see in Harry. You talked about just sort of like, how love is represented and what mm-hmm. protective power it has in your earlier comments. And just like, what what does Harry learn about love here? And and are they good lessons? Are they lessons we like? Yeah, Jess, what do you think about that? Since you mentioned it before, that's something I was thinking about. And I'm curious what you yeah. what, what you want to say about that. I mean, I, I my instinct is to find a lot of it really problematic. I genuinely admire the Hermione's in danger, let's put ourselves in danger, right? Like mm-hmm. that seems like the kind of love that I am really interested in. I'm less interested in moments like only absolute loyalty to me, Harry, would have gotten Fox to come to you. Right. And so like Harry only gets saved because of his like cultish, fetishistic loyalty to Dumbledore. That seems wrong to me. Like other things should be able to call something that will save you to them. I think like just the fact that he's a child at Hogwarts, I would like it if all he did was like remind the walls, I'm a student here. I'm supposed to be safe. And like that brought Fox. So like that's one moment that I don't feel great about. And yeah, I just don't feel great. I don't think all love has to be sacrificial love. Yeah. And that seems to be the one of the only kinds of love that is shown in this book, even Ginny, right? He, she takes back the diary at great personal peril because she loves Harry. It just seems like again and again, there's this idea that love has to be about sacrifice. And I just don't think yeah. that that's the only kind of love that matters. I mean, I think one of the questions we can and ought to ask when you read these books, especially around the question of what love is and how powerful it is, which kind of is our question, you know, so there's a reason why it's the theme we always read the last chapter of every book through. It's like, when does magic happen and when does magic not happen? Mm-hmm. Right? So like, yeah. the, you know, the charm in the first book is Harry's, Harry's touch is painful to quarrel, right? That's the charm. The charm here is like this loyalty that he s- expresses this utter loyalty to, to Dumbledore in the Chamber of Secrets. That's what delivers Fox. And that that gives the idea that, oh, okay, love means utter loyalty, yeah. even to the point of death, which is, you know, I think it does involve loyalty. But I'm not sure, as you say, I'm not sure that's the thing I want to attach magic to. And then the other thing I just think about, like, where magic doesn't happen in this novel is I think about Molly in that room, like, panicking and grief-stricken and terror-stricken before Ginny is rescued and I think that well, she loves Ginny just as much as Lily ever loved Harry. Right. The difference is that Lily died. Right. Right. And so the charm only happens because somebody died for it. And that's where it goes to like your early comment about like death as itself redemptive rather than love as redemptive. Right. Molly loves Ginny as much as 
Lily did absolutely. and would have absolutely chosen to die for Ginny. Absolutely. But like, you don't always get to do that, right? You don't always. It provides get... no protection in this moment, right? Yeah. Which means the death is the thing that that affects the charm. Now, yes. I think there's like a there's like a literary gracefulness to it because I noticed in this book that that makes this kind of charm like kind of the exact opposite of a Horcrux, right? Like, which also requires a death, like a murder, yeah. which yeah. saves your soul, right? As opposed to sacrificing yourself protects the the life of another. So I think there's like an interesting like corollary or pairing there, but I still dislike it because what I want is for Molly's love in that moment to be just as protective because right. she is just as willing to risk. She is just as willing to give her life. She would do anything in that moment to save not just Ginny, but also Harry. Like she yeah. would do anything for them. The difference is she didn't die. And that makes the death itself rather than the love, the charm. And I don't like death as a charm. Yeah, I just, I thank you for articulating my frustration that I couldn't quite articulate to myself. And because I want that frustration more drawn out and rendered in the books, right? Because we know that right. that is actually the frustration that a lot of parents deal with, right? Of right. if I could have cancer instead of my child, I would, but I can't. And so I just have to sit here and watch it. And what should be beautiful right. about the magical world is that like that willingness to sacrifice, right? Which is the argument in book seven is like, all you have to do is being be willing to sacrifice. Right. You don't actually have to die is the charm. And yeah, that doesn't get rendered in this book with the same precision that it does in book seven and right. the way that I want magic to work in our world. Right. I mean, I think I, I think an overly generous reading in response to the critique we're giving is that Ginny survives. Right. So maybe love works by extension indirectly through Harry because Harry's been well cared for by Molly, et cetera, et cetera. But just the way the mechanism of the charm works, it just sounds yeah. like Molly's love is just less powerful and less protective than Lily's. And the only difference is between these two mothers, the only difference is one was murdered and the yeah. other one would do anything but wasn't murdered. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, it is now time for us to take the long view of the book. And can I tell you, I had such an aha moment. Do you want to hear it? I would love to hear your aha moment. What? What did you discover? Hagrid has a, like, creature that he has, I would argue, an unsafe relationship with in hmm. each book. And the stakes hmm. of it change in each book. So book one, Norbert. The stakes are not particularly high. It's, like, cute hijinks. Like, yes, Norbert could have burnt down the house, but, like, everything is vaguely okay. Aragog, slightly scarier, right? Like, could murder you. Then we have Buckbeak, the stakes of which become an unjust execution. Yep. In book four, we have him helping with the dragons for the four wizard tournament. And then I would say, like, the epitome of it is Grop, right? Grop comes in book five, you know, and then in book six, we have Hagrid trying to talk to other giants. And what I really never saw the arc of Hagrid like dealing with what are considered to be monsters in order for him to sort of practice being able to talk to his fellow giants. That it's like him acknowledging something monstrous within himself and like trying to say, no, 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 no. The thing that you think is monstrous in me is actually worth loving and is actually beautiful. And how like projection or externalized that is and how it probably prepares him for this like great diplomatic journey that he goes on with Madame Maxime. Yeah. And I think Madame Maxine actually plays into that in book four. Like that's part of him developing this sort of confidence in who he is and where he comes from and what gifts he might be able to give to the wizarding community. His kind of infatuation with Madame Maxime is part of that. And this is a great arc. I love this arc, Vanessa. This is great. This was a proper aha moment. I have an aha now, too. I Uh think you're right. And but it also like tracks with what I think is at stake in the full series, right, which is about moving to more inclusion, like overcoming wizarding supremacy. We're learning that Hagrid has been marginalized, that he's been marginalized because he's he's part giant. And it's him learning to accept that and embrace that and then learning how that can be a gift to the full community over the course of the full series. This is brilliant. Thank you. I mean, and then Grop ends up being like key in the Battle of Hogwarts, right? Yes. Like there's like literal benefits to it. it and yes, it like doesn't absolutely. all go smoothly, right? Like it's messy. But right. anyway, that is my first long view that I came to. Matt, do you have I love it. a long view? In the wrap of book one, I said I wanted to track Dumbledore's behavior throughout the series. Because overall 
I still like and admire Dumbledore. <laughs> Although, you know, as we discuss, he makes some mistakes. I think his mistakes are pretty grave in this book. <laughs> I think, I think, the I think. Dumbledore well, I mean, apologist walks it back a little. Yeah. No, I still think on balance, I think he's, he's a good figure. I think like everyone, he's flawed. I think what I'm realizing in this book is that he's flawed for all the reasons we were just talking about. Right. I think what makes him different than Voldemort, he's powerful like Voldemort. And what makes him different than Grindelwald? He's powerful like Grindelwald, right? What makes him different is that he does actually believe in the power of love. He believes that love is magic. And because he knows muggles feel love, he believes that muggles have access to this magic as well, which is why he wants to protect and preserve them. So that makes him on balance good. So he's a powerful wizard that believes those things. That's great. I think And leans away from power, right? Like is And leans away from power. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely, right? And I think where he falls short is that he has not listened to Harry Potter and the sacred text. (laughs) Because I don't think that he has reflected carefully enough upon, upon the particular magic of love, where its powers are and how protective love might be distinguished from things like sacrificial death. Because Dumbledore is a smart person. He's a smart wizard. The only way I can make sense of his recklessness in this book is that he is too confident in the power of love. Like, that that these children are being almost killed. Like, there's no way these children should be at school. That's just a reckless decision. Unless he believes, oh, love will protect us, right? Like, unless he believes that there's some protection present, he should not have these children at school. And unless he believes that Harry is so charmed by love that he can actually overcome Tom Riddle, the memory of Tom Riddle, and that he will instinctively say, this, you know, spell of loyalty that summons Fox. Like, it's all just quite stupid. And I think it's because he has not thought about what the limits of love are and that mm-hmm. death itself is not protective that, that or ought not to be, right? I think, yeah, so so I'm continuing to distract Dumbledore. I think he's on balance good because he is a powerful wizard who does believe in the power of love. And it's actually because he believes in the power of love that I think that he's able to understand the magic of muggles as well their respective magic and the magic of creatures like Dobby who loves Harry, but he's, he is misguided and his confidence is misplaced because I think he has not thought sufficiently or critically about what this power is and what other protective measures might be necessary, even when love is present. To be clear, I also think Dumbledore is on balance good. <laughs> like I know you do. I like Dumbledore. I would love to hang out with Dumbledore. I think he sounds, I honestly think he sounds like a lot of fun, a lot more fun than a lot of other characters in this book. He'd, yeah, right. He would offer you candy and you would like have a great conversation. He'd probably magic you a chintz armchair. He sounds like right. a delight. But I, I think you're right. And just because I just read book seven with our community class and so I just read, you know, all of this Ariana trauma. And it it if we read Dumbledore again, I think that this might be too generous of a reading. But if we read him as having, you know, tr- post-traumatic stress from Ariana's death, it would make sense to me that he would want to make deaths meaningful, right? His mom, his sister, his dad all had these traumatic deaths that were wrapped up in love or failures of love. Yeah. And I think, right, like that is one of the things that I pretty aggressively resist because I don't want people to die in order for other people to have good lives. 
But I, it makes sense to me that Dumbledore in his particularities believes that or wants to believe that. Yeah. And the one thing I'll say in his defense is that he's willing to do it himself, right? Like, yeah. he's very much willing to die. I mean, at like 150 years old and when he's dying yeah. anyway. But like, yeah. he, he is willing to put himself on the line in that way. Yes, I think that's right. We are going to do Florilegia, where we don't just pick a sparklet from our chapter, but we pick a sparklet that we feel represents something significant in the entirety of the novel. What quote did you bring? This sparklet, I mean, it's it doesn't sparkle, but I think it really does illuminate in some ways the book mm-hmm. and maybe the series. Mm-hmm. And it comes from an unexpected place. This is not a character from whom I thought I would glean a sparklet mm-hmm. in book two but it is lucius malfoy mm, at the end of my favorite at the end of this novel when he barks at harry you've lost me my servant boy and i think it just says so much about the series right it all the things we've been talking about vanessa right that that this is about people having to give up power it's not about purity of identity like we know this from tom riddle and what he just revealed about his own ancestry, right? It's not actually about purity of identity. It's about power. It's about who gets to have power over whom. And this is Harry's first first act of actually starting to undo the system. And he does it with ingenuity and creativity. And even the way this, this exclamation is written with boy as the last word, it's an unexpected person who's going to affect this change. It's children, right? It's also people who don't have all the power, who are going to rally together to protect others who don't have power. So I, I think, you know, Lucius is seeing what's happening here. He doesn't even realize he's seeing what's happening, but he's seeing what's happening. And this, this one very curt line actually projects out what is going to happen over the next five books. Yeah. Vanessa, what is your sparklet to represent the whole of book two? It's long, but it is technically one sentence. So bear with me, everyone. Okay. They built this castle together, far from prying muggle eyes, for it was an age when magic was feared by common people, and witches and wizards suffered much persecution. And so this is from that Bins conversation that we were alluding to earlier. The students ask for the history of the Chamber of Secrets and the heir of Slytherin, And Binns is giving them a history lesson about Hogwarts because most of the students, as we know, other than Hermione, have not read Hogwarts a history. And he's talking about the four founders. And I think it's just a really interesting way to couch this story. It was an age when magic was feared by common people and witches and wizards suffered much persecution because the only reason that magic isn't feared by common people now is because it's hidden, right? This far from prying muggle eyes has still proven to be effective. And the the root of the story being one of persecution, I think is hmm. is a really interesting justification for all sorts of things. And what Binz is about to tell us later is that they started fighting, right? And so I think that we see like all of the beauty of Hogwarts and all of the flaws of its inception sort of in this sentence and the lore of Hogwarts is sort of starting. Yeah. 
I think that's really important too, because it's it's also just like a window into the comparative characterizations of Tom Riddle and Harry Potter, right? Because both of their childhood begin with muggles ostracizing and humiliating children who are wizards. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, the same dynamic that leads to the establishment of Hogwarts is what conditions kind of the childhood of these children. And both of them find refuge in Hogwarts, which is what Hogwarts was meant to be. Right. But yep. then that that childhood trauma bears out in really different ways, obviously, with these two characters. So so you can map the whole story of the Wizarding World onto these two characters, and then the two options that Harry and Tom take between Wizarding Supremacy versus like Wizarding Solidarity or something. Yeah. Right. Like those as responses to to evil that's been done in the past. Yeah. Doesn't it just make you want to dismantle the house system? Me too. Okay, good. You want to read them the first time? I'll read them. All right. You've lost me, my servant boy. They built this castle together, far from prying muggle eyes, for it was an age when magic was feared by common people and witches and wizards suffered much persecution. Now that's interesting. It's super interesting. It's like the servants built it. Oh, That's right. Right? Like it makes me think that like even, I wonder even at this time if elves were still enslaved to to wizards. And so don't you know how important slaves are? When we were at our lowest, it's these slaves who gave us this castle, which is probably the case, right? Like this kind of injustice goes all the way down. Yeah. So interesting. I'd never thought of that, that it was most likely house elves who, who literally built Hogwarts. Yeah. Which is interesting in conversation with, you know, how the white house was built. Yep. And the justifications, right. Of like, it was done in the name of free people, not acknowledging the right. Yeah. Right. We were suffering persecution. So we needed this, this new castle. But meanwhile, yeah. Who's building it, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay, Matt. Well, let's let's put them in the other order. I can read them. They built this castle together, far from prying muggle eyes, for it was an age when magic was feared by common people and witches and wizards suffered much persecution. You've lost me, my servant boy. See, I re- I read this differently, that the context is different. So it's it's like someone giving this beautiful lecture <laughs> and someone yeah. else walking in and being like, you lost me, my servant. It reads more like a stage play to me. It do- Yeah, it does. It, well, I think in this sense, it's to me, it's less clear here that the witches and wizards had servants or slaves who built the castle. To me, it sounds like in this case that the wizards and wizards were the servants, right? That have been yeah. lost. Like, I mean, I guess one way you could read it is that, you know, Voldemort and Lucius's ideology is actually one where it's where the servants and the oppressed are not just house elves it's actually other wizards right it's it's anyone who doesn't fit into the narrow class of folks who they determine are pure blood right and so the the wizards and witches can become the servants and slaves of this ruling class that they want to to elevate through the myth of pure blood It also speaks to me of how often people in power feel persecuted, even when they are not being persecuted. And what's persecuting is the fear of losing that power, right? There's this like self-persecution of the constant fear of losing power is an oppressive thought. And so I write like one of the things about people in power is that there's this like belief in a scarcity of power. And therefore there's this like oppressive feeling of you can't lose it. Right. And I think that 
yeah, this potentially speaks to that as well, that people in power feel persecuted because they have so much to lose. Right. Which is also like maybe why it is children who have to do this, because even children with privilege like Harry also know what it's like not to have power. And so they can respond in a in a way that others won't. And it also just kind of points to the virtues of Harry that we talked about previously in this episode, that when Hermione says, this is life or death for me, Harry and Ron say, okay, then it can be life and death for us too, right? Like they they are willing to to give up some of that that power and not in like the, you know, not in the the dangerous way that we fear Dumbledore might be inclined to see it, but but they really do. And that's, yeah, Harry's great. He is. Well, Matt, thank you so much for this illuminating Florilegia. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's now time for us to remember the friends and family of our community who've been lost. Aunt Lena, who is 91, a fashionista, and always in sparkles in purple. Patrick McGovern, who is 85 and the life of the party. Kurt Zwickel who was 72, a state representative and family man. Marguerite, who was 47 and a mom to all and a fighter. And Joshua Smith, 
37, a friend, husband, father, who brought laughter. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, it's now time for us to offer blessings for characters. Who would you like to bless in all of book two? I mean, this is a repetition of my blessing from last week, but it just really sticks with me. I want to bless Molly. Like the terror of knowing that your love does not protect. Like we talked about in this episode, the terror that love is the most powerful force you feel in your body, especially to those you love. And you always kind of know it, but to be forced to recognize how impotent it is in a moment like the one Molly has to live through is something that if I had my druthers and I ruled the world, nobody would ever have to live through. And I just, I know some of our listeners have lived through it and I want to bless them for it and bless all people who are, who may be living through it now and bless Molly and the Weasleys for, for having had to endure it. My blessing I think is similar. I want to bless Moaning Myrtle for experiencing something that if I had my druthers, it would be something else that I would get rid of, which is just like the complete isolation that this child is living in for 50 years. She feels so alone that she's excited when someone asks her about her death. And I feel like we've all had moments where we have felt this isolated and alone. And I I can't imagine the horror of living like that in perpetuity, not having it be a moment, but having it be the way that you spend eternity. So yeah, I want to bless Myrtle and anyone who is feeling isolated and alone right now. For us mortals, that tends to pass, even though I know it probably feels like Myrtle's that it'll last forever. Well, that is book two. We did it, Matt. That's a wrap. <laughs> oh my gosh, book three. Book three, Cammy's favorite book. I'm I excited to return three. to book three. This was a Not Sorry production, a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by the ever-patient and encouraging AJ Uramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week as ever to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper DeKyle, Stephanie Balsell, and all of you who sent in the names of those who have been loved and lost. And Matt, thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. On to book three. Can't wait. Do, 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 no flying cars. No, I really agree, Vanessa. I think that, I mean, my impressions were similar if you'd like me to ask me about mine. <laughs> no, I said, no.